Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a very, very special guest coming from Howard University, and it's Tiana Pantovich. Tiana, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Great, great. So Tiana, can you tell the listeners a couple sentences about yourself, ma'am? Sure. My name is Tiana Pantovich. I'm an Army veteran. I was in the Army from 2013 to 2017. I'm from the DMV, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Love it. Happy to be back here at Howard University. And while I was in the military, I was an Arabic cryptologic linguist. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. I can't wait to talk about all these things today. This is exciting. So Tiana, so tell us a little bit. So you're at a great university. Uh, You know, you look up, I I love to look up uh, kind of the notable alumni of universities, right? And when you look up Howard, it is like pages and pages and pages of of so many people who've done so many great things, you know, on a huge genre of stuff. So you're at a great school. You've had a really interesting military past you know, uh, pretty recent mm-hmm. out and, and a, a crypto linguist and a much needed job. You always see those that are advertised with uh, typically big bonuses. So we maybe we'll talk about that mm-hmm. <laughs> in the drive to go to higher education. <laughs> um, but before, before we get into today's show, can you tell us, based off your time in the Army and your job and then your time uh, as a graduate student and researcher uh, and published researcher uh, from Howard University, can you tell us what you see that veterans are doing well in higher education currently? I think one of the main things that veterans in higher education are doing well is really representing ourselves with poise and grit. I mean, we are really out there getting MBAs. I'm an MSW student. So many history PhD students that are truly thriving right now. And I love to see us thrive the way we are. I'm not seeing much of the veterans coming to classes, you know, in pajamas with red solo cups, like some of our peers do. I'm not seeing a lot of Macy's or Old Navy shopping on their computer screen while we're in class. Veterans on a whole tend to pay attention and they tend to care from what I'm seeing. And I really like seeing them in my classes pay attention. When I was at the University of Michigan getting my BA, I saw veterans in my classes and I could tell they were paying attention. And that, I don't know, really gave me a sense of pride to be part of that community. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? And it's so interesting that 
when you first answered this, you mentioned specifically not showing up in pajamas, right? <laughs> and not having red solo cups. Mm-hmm. This is something that's come mm-hmm. up on the show quite a bit. And this was my experience, you know, and I've, I've talked about it. I had my first college class ever was a world civ class, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. class, not, not the yeah. most desirable class to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I had it and I showed up early not like mega military early but early and <laughs> i had all my books i had read the material and i looked uh, at least presentable and i couldn't believe that class started and people were still rolling in in their pajamas right mm-hmm. <laughs> and then not paying attention somebody was eating a bowl of cereal in class like i remember all this stuff and it's like whoa where am i right Absolutely. My first semester at the University of Michigan, I remember being a Dr. Ed Chang psychopathology class. It was an 8 a.m. class, and he was a brilliant professor. But the amount of people who were in pajamas, the amount of people who had their red solo cups with questionable liquids inside at 8 a.m. after a weekend football game, uh, we all know Michigan is big on its football, um, was just off-putting. And there were other veterans in that class who we kind of, you know, didn't necessarily sit right next to each other, but we did kind of sit on a similar side and we were all paying attention and nobody's 100% perfect. We, you know, we had our distractions, but on a whole, we paid attention and we just carried ourselves with poise. And I really appreciate that being a part of that, people looking to that side of the auditorium and knowing that we're paying attention um, feels good to be a part of that, to represent in such a good way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you're at a place where you're paying so much money to get something, right? Or the others are, right? Yes. (laughs) It's $51,000 a year to go to the University of Michigan. Um, You graduate with $204,000 worth of debt. So, Wow. Wow. So now on the flip side, what is something that you think uh, that veterans could do better in higher education? I think what we could definitely do better is to advocate more for ourselves. Just because you're using veteran benefits does not mean that you're doomed to late payments, to low income, to late book vouchers. Uh, Those are your benefits. You have um, a scoop with your name on it that's meant for you to take a scoop out of this pot of benefits. It's a refillable soup bowl and you can take a scoop. You shouldn't feel any type of guilt for scooping into your benefits. They are there for you to use. They are meant for you to use and they are meant to be delivered on time. Hold the VA to that standard. Even if it is you know, one or two weeks late, your persistence prevents it from being three or four months late, from okay. getting to October or getting into November. And that's when you get your first BAH payment. That shouldn't be the case. Advocate for yourself and make sure that your BAH payment arrives August 31st, September 30th, and continues on October 31st, et cetera, et cetera. You're not doomed to poor service because of the VA, because it has this stigma. Be the advocate for change, be the change maker, and advocate for yourself. Go into that 
office, send that email or make that phone call. Um, you know, talking about it on Instagram or on Facebook is not going to get your payment there on time. Right. You need to advocate for yourself because you advocating for yourself likely makes the next person's payment more on time, likely means that the VA is going to take a look at your whole Office of Student Services office and see if it's functioning to standard. Uh, be that advocate for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope a lot of student veterans are, are listening to this very closely because <laughs> I don't I don't want to tarnish anything you've said because you've said it so beautifully. But I will say this. I have noticed, and especially in my current position of director of military affairs and services, the students that are proactive in advocating for themselves magically have less of these issues. Right. Mm -hmm. And the ones yeah. who do exactly the things that you've just mentioned, like go and complain on Facebook or complain on Instagram, for some reason, tend to perpetuate these kind of shortcomings and situations. So it's really You'll crazy. You'll still be on Facebook complaining in November when those that walked into the office back in August, they got their pain. So be that advocate. These are your benefits. You are allowed to sound entitled when it comes to your benefits because they're called entitlements in the first place. You are entitled to 36 months of education benefits and you should use them. Do not let them go to waste. Do not let someone make them late to your bank account. Do not let someone make your book stipends late. And now you are the one missing assignments. You are the one unable to come to class prepared because you don't have your books. You need to advocate and demand that book stipend and demand that BAH payment or your housing allowance payment. And it will come because those are your benefits. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing what an email and a phone call can do, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. So Tiana, let's talk about you. So crypto linguist, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. give us, you know, let's rewind back to pre 2013, maybe. <laughs> and uh, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to join the army. And then when you were, uh, you know, when you were getting training in the army, what was that like? What was that like becoming a crypto linguist? And then what was mm -hmm. your time in service like? Sure. Well, I grew up very poor, a single mom of four, and I joined the military while I was still in high school. I remember my senior year going into the recruiter's office uh, right outside of the mall. Um, I needed to get out of poverty. And while I didn't know the extent of the benefits that the military had, I knew healthcare, a job, and a steady paycheck were the minimum. So at 17 and a half, I knew I could get healthcare. I knew I could get a job with a paycheck if I just joined the military. And even though I was brilliant as a teenager, I did graduate high school with a 4.1 GPA. Um, at a 4.0, I was brilliant. I did not have the funds to pay, you know, an application fee to a college. I definitely didn't have the funds to pay that deposit to go to college. You know, looking back, you know, it was only $300, but that was not in my mother's bank account and it sure was not in my bank account. Um, so I told them that I, you know, was poor and I wanted a job. 
Um, at first I told them I wanted to be a 68 Juliet, uh, which is a medical lab assistant at the time. I'm not sure if the codes have changed since, um, but I scored in the mid nineties on my ASVAB. And on the way home, the, the female recruiter, I'll always remember her. She had short blonde hair and was a overcautious driver on the way home. Uh, she learned that I spoke Spanish at a fluency that was quite impressive after, you know, not being Hispanic and only having learned it in high school. Um, and I'm still fluent in it. So they set me up with the D-Lab. And the D-Lab is a wild test and everybody who's taken it, um, they didn't you know, truly know that they passed. I remember walking out, telling the man at the desk, I was sure that I failed. Uh, he said, nah, you got a 110, good job. And that was it. I was a crypto linguist, no choice, no second guessing. That was it. Uh, welcome to the delayed entry program or DEP. Once you finish your uh, AIT, here's $15,000 for taking this job. And when you are poor and just freshly 18, $15,000 is beautiful. It doesn't right. matter if it's taxed at 28%. <laughs> it was a beautiful bonus. And I didn't mind truly that I didn't uh, get the choice of 68 Juliet after that because there was a lot of consoling, you know, well, you'll go to Monterey and you'll be in Monterey for a while and your bonus, don't forget your bonus, wink, wink. So I was satisfied and I remember just being so gung-ho in the debt program. I would run through thunderstorms. I was really a teenage Rambo, just going <laughs> through the mud. Uh, it was so awesome to think of how motivated I was through those summer months of 2013. Just this 18-year-old that was so eager and excited to join the military. Um, but then the night before, boot camp arrived. I was 18, drinking Smirnoff and just wailing my eyes out. I was just truly <laughs> so scared. I was trembling. Um, the whole night, I was so terrified of what boot camp was going to look like the next day. Um, and then the next day, I did my tuck in your shirt, swear in, and I was heading out on a plane to go to Fort Sill. And there was no turning back. And I was eager. I really, truly was. But I was small. I was scared. I was young. Um, and I got to Fort Sill kind of still in that unsteady mindset, kind of feeling I didn't deserve it. I was undeserving of the position. Um, kind of seeing these people with, you know, the people who come in as special with their degrees or people who are, you know, 25. Um, I was 18 and I, you know, wasn't, wasn't uh, where they were just yet. But I remember watching a video um, and it immediately changed me. Um, and I remember I was getting 100% in the push-ups and the sit-ups. I was passing the run. I just knew I wanted to be better. And I was better. I was a better Tiana after boot camp. The Tiana that arrived in Monterey was just different than the Tiana that arrived at boot camp. And I'll always be grateful for that. I still talk to some of my friends 
years later um, that I met in boot camp, and they are thriving, and I want to see them continue to thrive. Um, and that was wonderful. And I thrived at DLI. I was getting good grades in my Arabic courses. My class arrived with 18 of some of the smartest soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. But unfortunately, only five of us passed the Arabic DLPT. So five out of 18 pass rate on the first try. Luckily, I was one of those five. I got a two, two plus two on the Arabic DLPT. And anybody who knows the DLPT, two, two, one plus is passing. And I excelled. And I ended up getting a three, two plus on my Spanish DLPT, which was also wonderful. Um, unfortunately, on the physical side, I was suffering from some really bad shin splints from the boots and the hills at the base, uh, pain that I literally still feel on a weekly basis today when they say the army wears down your body. I'm young and I still deal with shin splints. You know, just yesterday I was dealing with my shin splints still. Um, while I was in that hold status because of the shin splints, I suffered a rape off base one evening. Um, arriving back to base, reporting it, and going through um, some of those motions was very difficult. Uh, the interrogations were some of the hardest and most demoralizing things I could go through, and they were just truly miserable. A lot of people who have gone through sexual assault in the military will say that it's the interrogations after that are so hard. Um, listening to a man ask me, uh, what were you wearing that night? Just two days after the rape was awful because now I'm a trained psychologist. I give therapy to people and I understand that the imprinting of the memory will always be, well, was what I wearing a factor in it? And I had to work for many years to undo that reasoning in my mind. But the investigator uh, was triggering synapses in my still developing 20 year old mind. I was only 20 years old. Um, so to help me get away from the predator, I was able to move on to Goodfellow Air Force Base. Goodfellow was a difficult experience as I was navigating dealing with my own open case of sexual assault that had occurred in California. Um, and you know, having to navigate court cases and reviews and meetings that were on, in a different state, uh, it was difficult. It was difficult and I did not recover um, from that situation, unfortunately. Wow, wow, Tiana. So there's a lot to unpack here, right? Because <clears throat> Here you were, uh, extremely motivated and obviously excelling, right, at the Defense Language Institute. Uh, I want everybody to know when, when you're saying uh, DIL, Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. And, uh, you know, this, this happens. And what I think people are starting to wake up to is that mm -hmm. this is a huge problem right? Uh, yes. the, the systematic culture and then the way uh, exactly what you've experienced, the, the way people investigate and try to get to the facts is very uh, draconian and accusatory mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, what people don't understand. And I just want to take a moment and, and 
you know, highlight this for the listeners is what people don't understand with being a female in the military. And you're coming across this in the literature more and more. However, it's not really been until the past couple of years that people have really been talking about in the capacity that they do. But oftentimes things are not reported or they're reported reluctantly mm -hmm. because of some similar mm -hmm. things that you experienced, you know, and it's almost like uh, people say, well, nothing's going to happen. I'm going to be the one who's blamed. And, yeah. you know, and, and like, just like you're talking about, the military is going to do what the military needs to do. And it's moving you to another base, right? With, with no regard to uh, handling mm -hmm. the situation the best and, you know, having that uh, being taken care of for your emotional and physical well-being. And so this is, this is something that is really a huge problem and is really part of uh, this kind of hierarchy in the military. And that is definitely a, a male dominant hierarchy, right? And there wasn't closure given. We see now um, just in 2020, Vanessa Gillen at Fort Hood. Fort right. Hood was actually my base after uh, Goodfellow Air Force Base. I did go to Goodfellow or I did go to Fort Hood and even my own base where I advocated to change this. I was a huge advocate to change the reporting process, to change the way people were interrogated because it wasn't questioning. I'm using the word interrogated for a reason because it was seeming as though I committed the crime and I was being interrogated for my acts of the crime. And that is just not the case. Um, but Vanessa Gillen, when she wanted to go report, she was bludgeoned to death by a superior with a hammer and then split apart and put on fire in a training field. What does that show? to the future female soldiers that are considering even reporting. They are now put in a position where they have to consider, am I gonna get bludgeoned to death? That's real. Right, exactly, exactly. And you know, I think it's interesting, uh, particularly after the Vanessa Gillen case that you're talking about at Fort Hood, the army came out with some advertisements talking about taking care of family. And, you know, there's some social media stuff like that. And it was just very interesting, yeah. their timing with that. Cause it's like, okay, you can't even keep soldiers in a chain of command, you know, alive on base. How do, how, how would mm -hmm. somebody expect for you to take care of family on top of the troops? I mean, Really, really, really investigate it, go after the perpetrator and make changes happen. There was no belief in that. And so I developed nightmares in the winter of 2015. I spent majority of 2016 at Fort Hood trying to overcome the trauma. Um, I understand now I just simply was not you cannot overcome the trauma at the same time you're dealing with the trauma. You can't overcome the trauma when you're still having to relive it by recounting it on all of these conference phone calls. Um, and now I'm a therapist and I understand that. Uh, but unfortunately, it just, I was 
not necessarily unrecoverable, but I was truly not deployable with all the nightmares I was having, the cold sweats I was having, and reliving the experience in my dreams, um, I couldn't perform to the best of my ability. Uh, and unfortunately, it was due to no fault of my own. I just suffered an unfortunate situation. Those situations happen. If the army had been there for me and had been a supportive network for me, uh, I believe I would have continued to thrive as a soldier. I would have been an excellent female leader and I would have encouraged my female soldiers to do the right thing, to report, uh, because unfortunately there is this mindset that the females that report are the weak links that they're the disruption and cohesion. When in reality, it is the perpetrators, it is the rapists and the assaulters that hurt the cohesion. That if these assaults weren't perpetrated in the first place, there wouldn't be any type of loosening of cohesion or any type of distraction from the mission. It is the assaulters that are doing it, but um, it didn't, Uh, go the way I intended and I made waves to make change and I truly believe that I left Goodfellow making the army a better place than it was when I arrived at Goodfellow because I wasn't going to accept it. I was not going to accept substandard service for such a traumatic experience in my life. Even though I was not a psychologist at that point, I knew the trajectory of my life had changed when I came back and my roommate and I had to go to the hospital. I spent 14 hours in the hospital after the incident. And I knew sitting there looking up at the hospital ceiling that my, the trajectory of my life had changed. And now I'm a therapist for women who have experienced trauma. And I love being a therapist and I love looking them in the eye and telling them I understand, and I'm here to help you, and this is how we can get through it. And I can tell them things that worked for me, things that did not work for me, and they could take from that what they wish. Some things that didn't work for me may work for them, and some things that didn't work for me won't work for them either. And my experience now allows me to be a better therapist, um, and I am a really good therapist. I bet. I bet. I absolutely <laughs> believe that. I can tell, I can see it in your voice I, or I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I can see in, in your whole, you know, your experiences, good, bad, and otherwise. I mean, you obviously are very bright. You've maintained that throughout, I mean, high school, throughout the military and currently, I mean, yeah, everything you've done speaks for itself. Um, and then I know you've been able to put that together some total and you like you mentioned, you have this uh, unique point to truly be empathetic with people and and honest with them and help guide them. And uh, of course, your MSW uh, background just only supports that. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure anybody who gets in front of you and and is able to talk to you is very, very lucky, very lucky. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm also blessed to have my clients in front of me because they bring perspective. I just the depth of trauma that human beings go through, I don't think we as laymen understand until, you know, I had a client who had four children and two of her children died in a fire and she had two other children still living. 
could I really truly grasp how really deep grief goes? How do you deal with that? And uh, helping her through that, um, you know, was one of the best best experiences I've had as a therapist. Um, I've helped, you know, young women overcoming, uh, teenagers overcoming assault. Um, and, and I'm lucky to have them as clients as well. Wow. Wow. So, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about how you got there. So, because your, you know, your military time was, you were trained crypto linguists, uh, scoring Mm -hmm. very high, Obviously, something has has drew you to uh, what you wanted to study in your undergraduate degree. Can you mm-hmm. tell us kind of like what was your transition like out of the military, and then what kind of prompted you to start on your course in your undergraduate degree? Sure. So I got out of the military attending classes at Central Texas College, which is in Colleen, Texas, right outside of Fort Hood. I did finish that degree. It's on the wall behind me. I finished that degree with a perfect 4.0. I was number one in my class. And that was wonderful. To finish a degree with a perfect 4.0 is just lovely. Um, And anybody who's listening that has completed that, please take a moment to just pat yourself on the back because you absolutely deserve it. Finishing with a 4.0 is incredible. Um, And I transitioned out. Then I had a very lonely time. I still had not processed the sexual assault all the way. I was lonely. You go one day, everybody cares about where you are, arriving to PT on time. Everybody cares about you showing up to work on time, whether you're on West Fort Hood or the main base. And then suddenly, one day, nobody's sending you a text, you're removed from the group chat, and you feel lonely. I was very lonely. I did attempt to commit suicide in 2018. I am so thankful to God that I survived through that. I use that also in giving therapy that I do know what it's like to get to that point. I do know what it's like to go through the motions of wanting to kill yourself because you're at your wit's end. You're lonely. You don't feel like one more day is worth it. I understand, but life is beautiful and it does get better. And I then went on a van travel trip. I packed all my stuff into a storage unit. I moved into the back of a van and I traveled to 40 states all across the country. I was just learning and learning and learning. And it was just a lovely experience. I know a lot of people now, now that we're allowed to work from home are considering the van life. And I recommend it. If you are a listener and you possibly thought about the van life, do it a hundred percent. You don't leave van life regretting that you did it. You'll only regret that you didn't do it. So absolutely take the van life. And it was in the van life that I discovered Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where the University of Michigan is located. I fell in love with Ann Arbor. I decided I was going to enroll in the University of Michigan. I was going to study psychology. And verbatim, if you were to have asked me back then, And my journal say it as well. I'm a big advocate of journaling and diary. 
I wanted to figure out, quote unquote, what was wrong with me? I now understand I just have chronic PTSD and that is it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with me, but it is a response of my brain due to the incident that I went through. Uh, but at the time in 2018, just after a suicide attempt, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't grasp how to fix it. I couldn't grasp what it was. I couldn't put a name to it. And I decided to study psychology to be able to do that. And it was about a year and a half into Michigan that I completely grasped it. I was satisfied with what I learned and I was ready to then provide therapy to others. Um, it actually took um, until 2020 for me able to provide therapy, but I now do provide therapy, which is wonderful. Um, and I did thrive at Michigan. It was a totally enjoyable experience. I have my three complaints about Michigan, but overall it was a wonderful time. And I graduated uh, with a BA in psychology with a minor in community action and social change, which was perfect as I transitioned to Washington DC in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement to attend Howard University. And that worked out really well for me as well. Awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. I could see the sum total of that being very powerful, right? For where you are right now and, and for the rest of life. So let me ask you something. Let's back up a little. Mm -hmm. um, when you, when you were driving in the van, when you were mm -hmm. experiencing van life, which I had a, a little episode of this, but I had a station wagon. So it wasn't as glamorous as uh, van life and I didn't make it 40 states, but when you, when you were like, okay, Ann Arbor is the place. And you know, mm -hmm. if, if I get into the university of Michigan, this is where I want to be. Did you know at that moment where you like, I'm going to study psychology. Like it's that, that's what I want to do. Well, I knew I wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. So I didn't understand, you know, at that time, I couldn't have grasped, my imagination wasn't this grand. I could not have imagined that I would have been published in a social work journal, much less an international one. My imagination combined with my self-esteem at that time just wasn't that grand when I set out. And I think that is okay because along the way, I would see a goal, sometimes a tough goal, but I would see it as attainable. And I went through with it until it became time to finish that goal. And then I cruised to the end. In 2018, I couldn't have even grasped that a master's was in my sight. I couldn't have even grasped that I would do international studies. At the University of Michigan, I was able to study in England. And I learned from some phenomenal women over there. It was an all-female program. And my mind and my self-esteem, it's a combination of the two. First off, I, I didn't know that those were options. And if the option crossed my mind, I didn't believe my self-worth was enough to be able to fill that position, that somebody more worthy deserved to fill that position. And, you know, to the listeners, you are worthy. You deserve that position. You deserve that new job. You deserve that degree. You deserve that spot at the table and take it and take it with pride. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you're not going to do it, then who is, right? And mm-hmm. and I, I think, you know, I think you're a great example of this. Uh, we are capable of so much, even if we don't see it mm-hmm. at the time. Um, trauma does ruin a lot of that, right? It, it puts in that mm-hmm. self-doubt. Mm-hmm. It puts in those questions. But the reality is, is, is when we leave ourselves open to these opportunities, like, a master's is possible. Research is possible. Anything you want to do is possible. Um, you just have to have to take those steps. And sometimes life takes those steps for you. And if you're open to, to getting on that journey, then it can kind of uh, override that uh, self-doubt that's brought on by trauma. But sometimes you have to attack it consciously, right? And say, oh, I understand why I'm thinking this let me put this in this box. I'll deal with it when uh, it's appropriate right now. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, but also you've mentioned earlier, everyone's different, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone uh, feels and expresses trauma different. Everyone has a different perception of it. So really, and I would also stress the listeners, fine, it's okay to find what works for you, Mm -hmm. right? And Absolutely. I think when it comes to this self-doubt that a lot of the listeners and the listeners right now, there is someone who's going to listen to this who doubted themselves this morning, who doubted themselves last night before they went to bed. And what I do with my clients is I have them physically take their hand and remove the self-doubt from their head. So, so hover your hand above your head Grab that self-doubt, pull it out, and now take it into the palm of your hand and look at it and tell me, describe in detail what that self-doubt looks like. And for me, in 2018, that self-doubt looked like, well, nobody in my family has a bachelor's, so why do I need to get a bachelor's? Um, Nobody in my family went to a four-year school, so how am I going to fit in at a four-year school? You know, I'm old. At the time, I thought I was, you know, too old. I was 24. And, you know, I know there are people who are 30 that are thinking like, well, I'm too old to go back for a bachelor's. I'll be sitting next to 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds. And and what that does for you is what I mentioned at the beginning. You're going to be sitting in the classroom with poise. You're going to be sitting in the classroom with class. You're not going to be coming to the classroom in pajamas. And that's what that difference is going to make for you. So turn that self-doubt after you've thoroughly described it. Now I have my bachelor's. Now I'm only two semesters away from my master's degree. And when I become Dr. T, none of that doubt matters anymore. None of that doubt from 2018 will matter because I will become Dr. T. And that's who I want to be. And my path, I'm already on it. I'm, I'm working towards it. And, and that is that. That is my, my truth. It's super exciting to hear. I'm very excited for you. Uh, it's just amazing. So let me ask you, future Dr. T, when we first started talking, when we first started talking, you were sharing with me some very, very interesting research that you've recently been working on. Can you take the listeners kind of like 
your post bachelor's accomplishment into your master's? And then how did you get involved with this NIH research? And, you know, what, what, what have you been working on? Because it's really, really interesting. Well, I'm currently working on a couple projects. Actually, last Friday, the 6th, I finished my position at Howard University's Advancing Diversity and Aging Research, where the NIH funds projects, that's the National Institute of Health. Um, all summer, we have been looking at how senior citizens were affected by the lockdowns and quarantines that COVID-19 has brought us, because senior citizens face a very different reality than you and I do as working age individuals. We, this population is so unique. So I was really glad I was able to do that research under Dr. Cosby and Dr. Duderoy, two very accomplished Howard researchers. Um, I, we found that the eviction moratoriums were very, very critical in the type of aid that senior citizens needed um, and when we look at the future pandemics, because pandemics are inevitable as long as we live as close as we do, right. um, they have occurred prior and they're going to occur again. We need to use this data because we can't approach blanketly anymore. We have subpopulations within the United States, senior citizens, um, orphan children, um, homeless individuals, et cetera, et cetera. There's subpopulations that need to be addressed individually. And so what we're learning is how these senior citizens here in the city, and again, the rural population needs to be, that's a subpopulation. The urban population is a subpopulation. And so we looked at senior citizens in the urban population and how they were affected. Many of them had to take on their younger, either kids, grandkids, et cetera. Um, and after living alone or just living with their spouse for 22 years, suddenly there's their kid, their kid's husband and their kids, six kids in the house 24 seven and their mental health is affected. They love their grandkids, sure, but they need space. They've had space for 20 years. Their kid moved out 22 years ago. Um, you know, I'm just, you know, throwing out numbers, nobody in specific, but how did that affect their mental health? Are they able to address it to their own child? Hey, I've had my own space for 25 years now, and suddenly I don't have this space. Um, I need some space from you. Or does that come across as I don't love you? Because that's how um, someone who is unprepared for that conversation may receive it. Um, so those that moved in with their parents during these lockdowns, consider how their privacy has been infringed upon, that they were used to living a certain way. And now, although they love you and they thoroughly love you and they want nothing bad to happen to you, and that's why they allowed you to move in in the first place, they are humans. Humans are a private species, we are a social species, but also we need privacy within it. That's why we don't live in communal huts anymore. We live in our own individual cubicles of homes. We need our own space. And so we were learning those things, what their desires were, what their needs were, and what needs were not met. Um, I'm moving to Baltimore soon. So 
While there, like I said, this position with the senior citizens has recently ended and I'm looking for my new position. Um, I hope that I can intern with Afghan interpreters that have recently arrived to the United States. Right, right. While they speak, uh, they speak Pashto and Dari, and I was an Arabic linguist. I bet we could find some common ground in using my social work and therapy skills. I think that could be a really good help to that community, to that subpopulation. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure about that position as of right now. Um, I'm currently slated to be working at a substance use clinic which will also be wonderful because the opioid epidemic truly hit veterans. When I got out of the military um, in 2017, I had a small addiction with a narcotic as well. And I have experience with that. I'm very thankful I was able to overcome it before it became a full-blown addiction. Um, but when I'm you know, done with my degrees and I settle with working with veterans in the future, a year working at the substance use clinic would really give me some perspective. Um, the only thing is that that clinic is in DC. I'll be in Baltimore. It's just more locational than anything. And I would appreciate both experiences thoroughly. So if I get to work with the Afghan interpreters, this is really um, locational. The organization is located in Baltimore. And this is really situational that Right now, they're arriving. They may not be arriving in five years. You know, they weren't arriving five years ago. I really want to take advantage of that. But um, yeah, I also am really thankful that I get the opportunity to work with substance use because I will be facing that when they become a therapist for veterans. Um, I will be facing that within the veteran family. And I want to know how to address that empathetically. Um, and as for the PhD, yes, um, but I have three degrees now. I'm working on my fourth degree. I need a break and I will give myself a break. Um, my brain would like a break and being the mindful person that I am, I will absolutely grant myself the break it deserves for its hard work these past few years. So I've decided to go on a trip again. I want to go to 100 countries after this degree. I plan to go from hotel to hotel, to hostel to hostel, to Airbnb to Airbnb. On the other side of this pandemic, I would just like to go from country to country, hanging out for a short amount of time. Um, you know, assuming on the other side of the pandemic in summer 2022. <laughs> um, otherwise, uh, yeah, I do want to take that mental break. And as I said earlier, um, I believe also, some of the best learning I have had has been between my degrees in the, the traveling that I've done, the amount of knowledge I would gain going to 100 different countries with no obligations, no need to be in meetings, no need to commit assignments, no need to commit to readings. I bet I would learn so much. Um, then when I'm done with my traveling, I would like to do my PhD in genetics. Unfortunately, there are only 11 programs in the world that offer a PhD in genetics. So to overcome that, I would really look at PhDs in anthropology and psychology, a program that would allow me to duly look at my interest. I'm really interested in learning how genetic markers make for someone's psychological profile, how they're, if we can predict someone's genetic marker then they will vote a certain way. 
then they will raise kids a certain way. Then they will, I don't know, believe a certain way. Um, when you look in terms of mental illness, anorexia, for example, is highly heritable. It's a very highly heritable disease. Bipolar disorder is highly heritable. Um, schizophrenia is highly heritable. And so I wanna look at what else are we inheriting um, in our thought processes? What did we inherit from, um, from our parents? Um, what did we inherit from our grandparents that make us act a certain way? Because you know we subtly say, well, his dad was stubborn. That's why Joe is so stubborn. But is there an actual genetic marker that we could pool that both of these individuals have that make them more prone to be stubborn, for example. So that's what I would study in the future with my PhD. Wow. Wow, that's crazy interesting. Crazy, crazy interesting and really gets to the heart of the nature versus nurture, right? Yes. Debate. And then I think you could go on forever with this. It's like, uh, uh, are we predisposed to certain things because of genetics and then maybe we're shaped because of our environment and our uh, enculturation on top of that and then mm-hmm. what might that look like if separated what might that look like like you could go on and you know do so many combinations that would be so 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 interesting uh maybe get a little look out for it. the next right. 10 years i'll have a breakthrough it will be controversial because when you start looking at genetics um and even as i talked about my kind of pre-interests uh people assume that I look at genetics so that I could make, you know, this superhuman basketball player, um, you know, pick out the favorite genetics and make my best child. Um, but really I'm looking at genetics as we move forward and we start to colonize Mars, which is inevitable as we start to build colonies on these new planets. Um, are we able to pull out genes that we really don't want to have? Um, schizophrenia, for example, does not have a good prognosis. You are likely to be hospitalized long-term for it. Um, anorexia, you have a very poor prognosis as well. It's very hard to survive anorexia and bulimia. Um, are we able to just simply snag that out of the makeup of someone so that they don't have to be condemned to a lifetime of this. Um, But some people would say that we're playing God's work, but I disagree. I think science is wonderful. And science is the reason that you and I are able to talk right now and podcasts are able to be created. And uh, we were able to survive um, through a pandemic, rest in peace to the that hundreds of thousands that have died, but we are able to survive strong because of science. And I'm alive because of science. And I think science is so, so important. Wow. Wow. This is excellent. This is excellent. And I, I can't wait to have a follow-up show with you to, to catch up on, you know, uh, your future research and finding out exactly those answers to genes and to these uh, kind of family familiar uh, things that are happening with people. So it's very, very, very interesting. So Tiana, um, 
in the very near future, is there anything that we can expect to see, like the research that you've currently been working on? Uh, is that going to be out and available for the public to take a peek at? Well, I did recently publish and it's wonderful. I'm really happy with what I published. I think it's, um, I published in an international social work journal. I studied how social workers in mainland China navigated their difficulties because they do have difficulties. Um, the social work profession, just like as a plumber or um, as a, a, a construction worker, that occupation was banned in China for many years um, as they tried to create this perfect communist state, a state that doesn't have any social ills, for example. Um, when you're trying to create a perfect state that doesn't have social ills, you don't have quote unquote air quotes, you don't have senior citizens that are abused, you don't have mass homelessness, quote unquote, you don't have the big issues that social workers navigate. You don't have people dying from hunger, you don't have orphans being abused, but when you could no longer deny that those social ills are going to happen in a society that has over a billion people, you're gonna need social workers. And so the title of the article is Enhancing Field Education of Social Work in Mainland China, Perspectives from Students and Faculty Members. It has its own DOI. It's published, like I said, in Chinese and in English. Um, and one of the main things that we discovered during this research, this was a multi-year project, is that the lack of experienced field education supervisors. So my supervisor has 40 years of experience in the field. There's nothing he hasn't seen. Um, but when legally, because your supervisor couldn't practice for many years, legally, your supervisor has seven years of experience, for example, or four years of experience, for example you're not getting the same type of field education experience and supervisory experience that I am. Um, and while it was banned for a couple decades in China, the field still developed here on the Western world. So every year, the US was doing social work research and improving its social work curriculum. The you know, social workers in West Europe, also the same thing. It was still developing and moving forward. And so when you put a ban on it and then you unban it, those teachers, those supervisors, those students have to quickly make up 30 years of progress in their two-year MSW program. So there was a lot that we learned um, and a lot that I learned. It was my first... Um, experience with East Asia. Um, I have experience with the Middle East, but not much East Asia. And so now I'm so happy I worked with the international team. So feel free to read about that. Um, it's a good read if you can read Chinese. If you maybe are a linguist and you're a Chinese linguist, you can practice your Chinese uh, and read the article. Um, again, it's called Enhancing Field Education of Social Work in Mainland China, Perspectives from Students and Faculty Members. Very interesting. 
Very, very cool. Very, very cool. And I want to be respectful of your time. But before we go, just out of curiosity, since you mentioned 100 countries, what, <laughs> give me your top, give me your top three countries. Like what are your can't miss top three? So Thailand is definitely can't miss. I think South Africa is definitely cannot miss. And I would say Greece is a cannot miss. But when I need three out of a hundred, I'm gonna, you know, I wanna go to Italy, obviously. I've been to quite a few. I've been to the Bahamas. Um, I've been to Holland. I've been to, like I said, England. I've been to France. But I want to navigate the entirety of Europe up until um, I wanna avoid any type of shady arrests. So I will avoid some of the Eastern Euro blocks. Um, I don't wanna disappear. Um, but, and then also some of the areas um, that are a little bit problematic for women. As a female solo traveler, I need to be uh, cognizant of that, but definitely South America, Central America. Um, I plan to just go from country to country to country as much as possible. Very cool, very cool. Tana, this has been great. This has been so great. I'm glad you, you came on the show and I'm glad you were able to share so much with all of us today i really really appreciate absolutely it. so ladies and gentlemen we have been speaking with tiana pentovich of howard university she's a graduate student and researcher and as you heard in this episode she's on the move to a uh, new city new state and also to to new things so uh and we if if Tiana provides the link, we will provide the link to her research that she talked about uh, when we post about this, and we'll put it on our website as well. And uh, we will look forward to catching up with Tiana in the future. Again, Tiana, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Hopefully when you catch up with me, I'll be Dr. T by that point, and you won't have to stumble over my last name because I don't want to go by Dr. Pantovich. I want to go by Dr. T in the future. <laughs> I'm just going to, from now on, I'll just say future Dr. T. Awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to another edition of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. As always, we appreciate your support for the show. Thank you and take care. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.